Well, church, it is, it is a joy to be here with you. I have heard so many great things about you from, from your pastor, from Andrew. Uh, you know, my wife and I and our family got to know them uh, shortly after we had gotten to Buck Run and, and just love them dearly, love their heart for the word, and, and they speak so highly of you all and your love for Jesus and, and your love for preaching in Christ's word. So when he asked for me to, to come down and bring the word to you, I was, I was ecstatic really, and excited to be here. So, Amen. so let's pray, and uh, we're going to jump right into Psalm 100. So let's pray, and then, and then we'll go into Psalm 100. Father, we thank you for the great privilege we have to worship you freely. Father, we get to gather without fear as your people to worship you, to hear from your word. Father, we ask that your spirit would, would move, that you would convict us of sin, <clears throat> draw us close to you. May we, may we see the, the lifelong journey of worshiping you in all of life and enjoying you. Be with us today in the preaching of your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So when you think of worship, what is it that you think of? When you think of the word worship, what do you think of? Many people think of coming to church, going right where you are, and they hear the word worship, particularly singing songs in many ways. Others think of preaching when they think of the word worship. Others think of giving. And all of these aspects of church are worship. But do you realize that all of your life is worship? Worship consists of this inner essence of our heart that works itself out and it expresses ourselves publicly. Another way of thinking of that is, is worship is what you value or treasure, what your heart grasps for. You see, we were created to worship God. Amen. But since the fall of Adam, we have, we have sought to worship almost everything but God. So I want to ask you, what, what are you worshiping? What is it that you think most about? What do you desire most? What do you spend the most money on? You see, when we ask these questions, we get to diagnose our hearts a little bit and think about what it is that we truly worship. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where your heart, mind, soul, strength, where all of these things are focused is a good indicator of what it is that you worship. Do you worship yourself or do you worship God? Do you worship a sports team or do you worship God? Do you worship your stuff, your possessions, your conveniences, your comfort, or do you worship God? Worship of God is the most important priority we have as the people of God. And true worship is valuing and treasuring God above all things. So if you haven't done so yet, turn your Bible to Psalm 100. And Psalm 100 is a very helpful reminder to us where our worship ought to be focused. And Psalm 100 is this very brief, concise statement about the worship of God. It's, it's known as the, the Jubilee or the Obi Joyful. And this psalm is very commonly used in liturgical worship. And there's so much more to be said about worship in the Bible. But the psalmist here jam-packs truth about worship in Psalm 100. 
There are seven imperatives in these five verses. Make, serve, come, know, enter, give, bless. This, these rapid-fire commands of what it looks like and sounds like to engage in worship of God. And I want to show you how knowing who God is leads you to joyful delight and joyful obedience and action. Amen. So let's read Psalm 100 together. And as we're reading, think about how these verses fit together. Think about what is the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit doing. So let's read together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. Is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. So did you catch that? This is a beautifully and intricately structured psalm. Besides the fact that we're commanded to worship here, we are taught how to worship Him and why we are to worship Him. So this psalm, you need to understand the structure. It is structured as four stanzas. There's four stanzas here. And these stanzas really are the same. So verse 1 and 2, they show you how to worship God. Verse 3 teaches you why you are to worship God. Verse 4, again, teaches you how to worship God. And verse 5 instructs us on why we are to worship God. In each case, there are three components to each stanza. Look, for instance, look at verses 1 and 2. There are three verbs. Make a joyful noise, verb. Serve the Lord, which is a verb. Come into His presence, a verb. Stanza 2, verse 3. There are three reasons why we do so. Number one, He's God. Secondly, He made us. And we belong to him like sheep. We are his. Verse 4, the third stanza, back down on, on, on how we worship him. Somewhat repeats what he said in verses 1 and 2. We'll see that he, he takes us more deeply here in a minute. But three verbs again. Enter, where he uses this word come. His gates and courts. Give thanks. Bless his name. Three verbs. And then fourth stanza, verse 5. The why. The motivation for our thanks. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. So, so mm-hmm. notice the structure. There's flow in what's going on. The under, un, understanding the structure of this psalm unlocks the meaning for us. So let's look at these four stanzas one by one and, and see what God is, is showing us through these verses. So stanza number one. Here's what we learn. Shout to the Lord among all the nations. Shout to the Lord among all nations. Verses 1 and 2. This is the first stanza. When we give thanks to the Lord, it's not supposed to be this quiet, uh, subdued noise, but it's to be loud. It's to be passionate. It's going to be off the charts, over the top. We make a joyful noise. We don't make a whimper. This word joyful noise is often translated with the word shout. The word shout in Hebrew is most often used in military when they're invading the enemy. And you know if you've watched some different Civil War reenactments or, or World War I or II or Revolutionary War, whatever it might be, 
people charge at the enemy, when that happens, oftentimes they will shout. It's a military shout of victory. Even more specifically, if you, if you turn back a page or so to Psalm 98, in verse 6, we see with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. So this is known as a tribute shout. A shout to the king to enthrone him. It's a big hurrah. That's what the psalmist is saying. When he's saying, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, the whole earth is commanded to shout, to give him the honor and praise that he is due. Amen. So we make a joyful noise to the Lord. And then who does he tell to do that? All the earth, right? We worship a global God. The whole world must worship the Lord. This worship is everywhere. It's universal. The command goes out from heaven through the psalmist that the entire world, all the nations, no matter what your religious background, will worship the true God of Israel. You will worship the Godfather of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone in the world will do that eventually. Whether that's on this side of eternity or the other, we want to do everything we can to share the gospel so that all people will come to faith in Christ. Amen. And all throughout Scripture, we see God's desire to show His glory among the nations. Just a couple reminders of those. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 5. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. You know, gather praises connected to worldwide worship. All throughout the Bible, and this ought to be the case in our own lives. We shout to the Lord among all the nations. Now specifically, how do you do that? Look at the next two phrases. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. You don't make this noise reluctantly or begrudgingly. You shout to the Lord among all the nations with a grateful heart. You shout to the Lord among all the nations with a grateful heart. This word serve, used in verse 2, is a word that leaves no gap or no choice between worship and work. Serve is frequently associated with worship in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is translated serve here in many Bibles for this verse, but it's also translated in several other words depending on its context used in the Old Testament. For example, Exodus verse 8, or Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Why did God rescue his people from Egypt? Well, the answer that's given is God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, that they can go out and serve. They can go out and worship me. Exodus 20, Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. The people of God are not to bow down or to serve false gods. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Same word is used to describe ordinary work. This word that you serve in verse 2. The Old Testament is clear that worship involves all of your life. 
all of your life. And the New Testament continues this. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything to the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God our Father through Him. So you are living a life of worship in all that you do. Moment by moment, surrendering to Christ's Lordship. So with a grateful heart, we worship the Lord. Which means for us, for, for those of us in this room and, and online, this, this divide between the sacred and the secular does not exist. All of life becomes sacred when you trust in Jesus as your king. That, that means that some things don't belong over here in, in the secular world, and, and some things belong to the sacred world, the divine things that, that God really cares about. No, all of life becomes sacred when you trust in Jesus. We live all of life before the face of God. So let me ask you this. Do you think that you're worshiping daily as you take a sip of your coffee or drink your tea? Do you see your interaction with other people as an act of worship? Dads, do you think this way in parenting, nurturing, caring for, providing, instructing? Do you see these things as an act of worship to God? This brings honor to God. It's a means that you steward his gifts. If you're a student, do you see your studies as an opportunity to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you work hard at your job for the Lord or merely to, to please the company you work for? You are serving Christ, and this changes the way you go in the office. This changes the way you make, wake up every morning preparing for your day. You aren't merely rearing children, merely studying, or merely working for this or that company. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We're wanting Him to be praised with everything we do. We do it with gladness, according to the psalmist. Worship is not just singing songs and sharing the gospel with unbelievers, although it certainly includes those things. Worship includes coming back from your lunch break on time, checking your emails for the glory of God, being a peacemaker in your work and, and operating with integrity, Making great, clean, understandable spreadsheets for your job, for the glory of God. Worship touches every aspect of our lives. Worship is huge. And we do this with gladness. We do this with a grateful heart. There's a king who wants the people he has made to enthrone him as king. And to shout a triumphant, glorious shout that he is in charge of the universe among all peoples. And we do that with a grateful heart. But it doesn't stop there. We shout with a joyful voice. We shout with a joyful voice. The relational nature of worship is emphasized here. We come into his presence with singing. This is how you make a joyful noise. You do it with a glad heart and an uplifted voice. Notice that he says you make a joyful noise. You don't listen to a joyful noise. He says you make it. You're the choir. You know, one of the, the big misunderstandings among God's people can be that other people do the singing. And we appreciate their joyful noise. Our job is to imitate those people. They're leading us to do it ourselves. You know, I think of, of one of our other dear pastors at Buck Run. Uh, he's, he's a lay pastor and... He does not sing or lead worship. 
on the stage, but he, he does so in the congregation. And you can just tell by looking at him that he believes what he's truly saying. It has marked him. And he sings loudly and he sings boldly. Uh, and whenever I think of verse 2, I think of, I think of Brother Dave. So this is how we make a joyful noise to the Lord. We, we serve him with gladness. We sing. We're going to touch on this again in verse 4. So we shout to the Lord among all the nations with a grateful heart and a joyful voice. And these actions are founded upon a knowledge. So when you turn to verse 3, you get to the second stanza. Remember how the psalm is structured. And what he's teaching us in the second stanza is that we must know why we're worshiping him. If we want to worship him in the way that 1 and 2 is describing, we need to have a grounding understanding of why we're doing so. We don't make a joyful noise thoughtlessly. We don't enter into the sanctuary and start singing without thinking about it. We don't come without prepared hearts. We don't come without reasons. No, he says in verse 3, you must know something. Know that the Lord, He is God, is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So, brothers and sisters, realize that the Lord, in verse 3, you know, the psalmist pivots around this final command, as we saw earlier. So these three imperatives, shout, worship, come, they precede this command, know. And there's three more that are going to come right after. Enter, give thanks, bless. Making this slightly unusual command, know, the pivot around which the others revolve. Know that the Lord is God is a significant structural and theological part of Psalm 100. It implies merely, more than this mere mental acknowledgement. This command is a whole life affirmation that stems from being completely devoted to God and worshiping Him. So we know... That the Lord, this word in Hebrew is Yahweh or Jehovah, this personal covenantal name of God given to the Israelites. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, your God, Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is God. So you realize that the Lord first is God. See it in verse 3. The Lord is God. There's none other. Yes, there are many other different religions in the world. And we respect people of other religions, but we do not equally respect all religions because they aren't true. There's one religion, and it's what has been given to us in God's word from the one true and holy God. Amen. And the psalmist says here, here's why we worship him, because he is God. There's no other God. And if you think about it, this is what Elijah proved to the Israelites. When all the other priests... From all these other religions were gathered, seven to eight hundred of them, and there's one little Elijah. And fire came down on Elijah's sacrifice and consumed it. And what did the people cry out? Jehovah, the Lord, He is God. And that's what the name Elijah means. Yahweh is God. And that's what the psalmist is saying. That's the reason we thank. That's the reason we worship Him. Because we realize that the Lord, He is God. Amen. Secondly, look in verse 3. We realize that it is He who made us. He made us. The Lord is God and He made us. So that means that no matter what you've enjoyed already this morning, the clothes you wear, the heat you enjoy, the food you're going to eat, the job you work, the family that you have, the car you drive, everything is made by God. So if you're enjoying anything, let me tell you where it came from. 
It came from God. And you were made from Him. You were made by God. He knew you and He formed you in your mother's womb. He shaped and He molded your inward parts. So we worship Him because He's the source of every good thing. Even our very lives. He made us. So our joyful shouts, our service, our coming into His presence is predicated upon knowing that He is God. He made us. And thirdly, in the second stanza, He not only made us, but He owns us. He owns us. God isn't only known as Creator here, but there are covenantal overtones. We are His people. We are His sheep of His pasture. Jesus used this type of language frequently. John 10, 14-16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. God's special people made up of Jews and Gentiles belong to Him. We are God's possession in Christ. So we are His people. Paul stresses this in his epistles. We are His by virtue of creation, but we are also His by virtue of redemption. Those of you who are in Christ, there's a deeper level of being His. We belong to Him for His purposes. That's, that's the reason. So when we come to worship Him, it's not so much thinking about ourselves and whether we're enjoying thinking about Him or not, You know, which is what most people ask when they come to worship. You know, they ask afterwards, did I enjoy the worship service today? Well, I would argue the real fundamental question is, did you, who are His property, who have been made by Him, did you fulfill His purposes today? That's the question. Did you do what He wants you to do for the reasons that He wants you to do it? And hear me say this. We cannot accomplish the commands of verse, verses 1 and 2 without tr truly knowing the truth in verses 3. Amen. Notice from this psalm, you know, we don't just learn more things to know it for knowledge's sake or just so that we can quote the Bible more. What the psalmist is telling us, know that the Lord, He is God, is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Why? So that with that knowledge, you can make a joyful noise to the Lord. See this. If we are training in knowledge and education and it doesn't lead to more praise of God, you are we are wasting our time. If we go to Sunday school and we learn the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and we memorize a hundred verses and you don't come into this room regularly and when you come, you don't sing with gladness, there is a disconnect happening somewhere. The knowledge of God is for the purpose of worship. The reason that you know about Him and His great works is so that we, creatures who have been made in His image, can lift our hearts and our voices and acknowledge His greatness. That's the reason we're here. The purpose of our knowledge is for exaltation. Now, notice how he re recapitulates. We're going, we're going now to stanzas 3 and 4. Remember that structure. Look in stanza 3, which is in verse 4. Might be slightly confusing. Stanza 3, verse 4. He's telling us again how to thank Him. Three verbs again. Notice that. Enter, give thanks, bless. It seems like He's saying the same thing over again. And in a sense, He is. But remember, in Hebrew repetition, what normally happens in the Psalms is you're either spiraling up or you're spiraling down. So if it's a lament, he'll say roughly the same thing, 
but it takes a little bit deeper turn into sorrow. Same thing in phrase, but often with a different angle. Here's the different angle. Look in verse 4 and see what he's saying. Is he talking to the whole world now? No. He seems to be talking specifically to the people of God. Verse 4 teaches us that the people of God must especially thank Him and worship Him. The people who are called by His name, who have been saved, who have trusted in Christ, who have been given promises, who have been brought into covenant with Him. So shout to the Lord as His people. I use the word shout here in describing this because it describes the, the joyfulness that we come as we gather together as His people. So we saw a hint of this in verse 2 with the word come, but we see temple language very clearly. Look in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. What are his gates and what are these courts that the psalmist is talking about? Well, these are the gates and the courts of the temple. And he's saying, you who know him redemptively. For those of you who know him, not only as God of creation, but also as the God of salvation, you enter his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. So that when you gather together as the people of God, you're a picture of the heavenly assembly of the saints in heaven. Now, our situation in redemptive history is a little different. Worship is more than Sunday gatherings, but it's not less. We're called to gather together, which is what we're doing today. Hebrews 10. We're called to gather in Christ's name to worship God corporately. It's true that we no longer go to the temple as, as Psalm 100 describes. We don't need a priest offering the goat skin in the back room. We don't need ceremonial washings to, to proceed forward where we stop here and then priests keep going. They eventually stop and one day a year the, the high priest can go, go further into the Holy of Holies. We've left that behind. This temple was pointing forward to something greater and that is Jesus. Amen. Jesus is the temple. He is tabernacled. He has dwelled among us. He is now the place where sinful people go to meet with God. When Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross, something very significant happened. The curtain which barred access to the presence of God was destroyed. And it means that all worship, this side of the cross, is the holy of holies for all believers now. Amen. And that is, that is to be done in all of life. So although we don't need the physical temple anymore, these words really capture the spirit of how we gather together. We serve him with gladness. We come into his presence with singing. We enter his courts with praise. So we shout to the Lord as his people, enjoying personal access to him as the church. We enter into an intimate relationship with him. You are his intimate possession. We enter these courts with thanksgiving. And we have even more reasons to thank and worship God. Yes, of course, we thank Him because He is God. We thank Him because He made everything. We all thank Him because He made us and we belong to Him. But for those of you who have been forgiven of your sins and you know that, you know that you were a rebel before the King, the thanksgiving due from you is so much more special. So let me ask you, do you come like this to the corporate gatherings of worship. You know, one of my favorite aspects of, of worship is, is the singing portion of worship. Even as a young boy, I remember this being one of my favorite aspects. I would, I would oftentimes 
try to match different tunes depending on what was being sung. Uh, the interest in praying and preaching would come later on. But the singing was significant. I loved it. And one of my favorite parts of sitting under the, the preaching and teaching of Dr. Bill Cook in, in Louisville, Kentucky at, at a church called Ninth and O was his emphasis on singing loudly and singing boldly. He would say, you're singing the gospel into yourself and you're singing the gospel into the other people around you. You're reminding yourself where your feet are planted. So brothers and sisters, song after song, you're reminding yourself of the gospel as you're gathered together. And all of the worship service is a time of worshiping the Lord through various means, through, through scripture reading, singing, preaching, praying, the ordinances. You're reminding yourself how sufficient God is. Amen. So look what he says in the fourth stanza. The final verse. Here are the reasons. Remembering that our worship is built upon his goodness. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good. You know his goodness. Verse 5 is the central statement of this psalm. And we know this because of the word for. And when you see the word for, you ask what it's there for. And, and of worship as a whole in the Old Testament. Remembering that our worship is built upon his goodness. For the Lord is good. This reminder of God's goodness is the classic psalmist justification for worship. You know, why do you bring praise? Because God is good. This is one of the most profound and basic character claims of God that could be made of any deity in the ancient world. The gods were seldom loving or good or kind. So this claim in the Bible would have been as radical as it is attractive when Psalm 100 was first sung. Now, how is God's goodness expressed? For the Lord is good. It is expressed in his steadfast love and his faithfulness. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. There is steadfast love. In the Hebrew, this is hesed, which means that his love endures forever. It's his steadfast love toward his people. Why did God forbear with Abram when he disbelieved God's promise of a great inheritance in Genesis 16? Well, it's because God's steadfast love endures forever. Why did God not destroy the Israelites when they built idols at Mount Sinai immediately after they were saved from the Egyptians? Why wasn't that the end of the story? Because God's steadfast love endures forever. Amen. In the New Testament... Why did God send his son, fully God and fully man, to take up residence in this world, to be rejected, mocked, flogged, and killed? Why did he do this? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. All right, we've got one more. Let's see if you guys can track with me. Why did God chase you down? Why did grace find you and show you the glory of God in Christ when there was nothing in you that attracted or drew his mercy? Why did he come after us rebels and hostiles? Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. That's right. This is the central theme for worship throughout all the ages. Not only do you see God is good with his steadfast love, but with faithfulness to all generations. Do you see how the Lord is working? He takes a people. He gives them children. These children are reared. 
And they enjoy the same steadfast love of the Lord, generation after generation. We see His faithfulness all throughout the Bible. God's steadfast love endures throughout all generations. God is good by being faithful to His people through multiple generations. Thanks be to God. Amen. So the joyful noise, the coming into His presence with gladness, is all built upon acknowledging and knowing that this is true of the God that we worship. So may all the earth praise Him. May His people particularly praise Him. He has done wondrous things. Now church and, and those who are listening, the most wonderful thing that He has done is that 2,000 years ago, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And Christ is the fulfillment of God's steadfast love and the fulfillment of His, stead, of his faithfulness. Now what Jesus did is when He became a man, He took upon Himself all our sins. And when he died on Calvary's cross, the wrath of God was rightly poured out upon us. Because, because he whoa, whoa, hold on. When he died on Calvary's cross, the wrath of God that was rightly poured out upon us because we sinned was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. Amen. So when you or I, when we put our faith in Jesus, what actually happens is that our sins are completely forgiven because they've been paid for completely by Jesus on the cross. Amen. So when you put your faith in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness, all of the righteousness that he rightfully earned now goes to your account. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Amen. And when you know this, how can your heart not be glad? How could you not worship him? He has, by his steadfast love, forgiven us, his willful, rebellious, sinful people in the person of Jesus. So let your heart be glad. Lift up your voices. God is to be praised for his enduring, steadfast love and his faithfulness to all generations. So final takeaway. May we meditate, may you meditate upon the knowledge of God's love for you. This is what true worship looks like. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you for your love and your faithfulness that you show to us in Christ. Father, we ask that you would develop your righteousness in our lives for your goodness and justice to be executed in the world. We pray that your name would be exalted among the whole earth. May we fulfill our role in the Great Commission, worshiping you among all nations. Worshiping you with gladness here as we gather together. May we, may we serve you with gladness. Father, we pray for, for Andrew and the Record family. We praise you for the birth of Ezra Spurgeon. We pray that you would be with them during this time. May they be encouraged. Give them patience. Give them joy uh, in the gift that you have provided to them in Ezra Spurgeon. We love you, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.